What's your carnal theory? Hey there, you're listening to Carnal Theory, where we talk with experts from around the world to learn how taking command of our sexual story affects our personal wellness, sexual experiences, and relationships with ourselves and others. I'm Abba. And I'm Amanda. And today on Carnal Theory, we're sitting down with Janelle Marie Pierce, the founder and executive director of the STI Project, which provides information and statistics, interactive services, referrals, as well as global outreach education efforts, all revolving around breaking the stigmas that surround sexually transmitted infections. Janelle is also an adjunct professor, the spokesperson for Positive Singles, and is involved with countless other projects and organizations. Janelle, thank you for being here. Lovely to meet you in person. Well, not in person, um, via Zoom. Can't wait to jump into this episode with you. Thank you for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Hi, Janelle. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, As we start each episode, we like to ask our guest to bring to the table the, the carnal theory for our consideration. And as a reminder to our listeners, this is something that's meant to challenge uh, perception that you might have about something previously. Um, we'll talk about uh, Janelle's carnal theory for a moment now, and then we'll revisit it at the end of the episode to see if maybe maybe our perceptions have already changed in the course of this conversation. So again, Janelle, thank you so much for being with us. And can you share the carnal theory that you've brought? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Again, it's my pleasure to be here in general. But yes, the carnal theory that I'm presenting is that STIs are a normal part of the human experience. I love that. I think that that's something that we'll we'll definitely get into this more, but it feels like STIs are so um, distanted from people's like cognition um, and they either they're like completely in denial that they will ever get one or they have one and they're trying to get other people to understand, you know, more about what these various sexually transmitted infections, which then lead to diseases, uh, might be. But let's start off because I think a lot of people might notice that we're using STI versus STD. Um, can you give a little rundown on like what the difference between those words are and what that, uh, why that transition, if you, if you know why that transition has taken place to using STI? Absolutely. That's such a great question. So STI stands for sexually transmitted infection and STD stands, stands for sexually transmitted disease. They're often used interchangeably right now by a lot of the authoritative bodies. Um, technically, STI is a little bit more inclusive, medically accurate, and some also believe that it carries a little bit less stigma. I'm not so sure I agree with that, but the idea around that is that an infection sounds a little less scary than a disease. Um, However, all STDs are preceded by an STI. And what I mean by that is first a pathogen enters your system and infects you and you are infected with the pathogen and you can potentially transmit it to others, but you may not have any signs or symptoms of disease. And so until you actually have any signs or symptoms, it still remains an STI. If you ever have any signs or symptoms and it impacts your body in any way, shape or form, then technically it becomes an STD. 
It's being used interchangeably quite often right now because a lot of the general public is still not aware of STI as a term and, and don't they just don't know what that means. So we want to be as um, accessible to folks who are Googling, like, how do I know if I have ST an STD? How do I get tested for an STD? Or what are, what are symptoms of STDs? Um, so that's why we at the STI project and in a lot of my work, I use them both. Um, but you see a lot of like sexual health educators and some additional organizations are really merging to STI just because it's a little more accurate, inclusive, and um, sounds sometimes a little bit less scary. But I would I would argue that both of them carry immense stigma regardless, because once somebody knows what STI means, then it still has the same stigma as STD. And pre previous, I'd be just little known fact or... Um, is that STD used to be venereal disease and venereal disease was even a little less inclusive because it only incorporated certain infections. So language changes and progresses over time, but usually it takes a while for the actual general public um, for it to get into the zeitgeist than, um, than it does for like the authoritative bodies and officials and such. So right now we're using them interchangeably. And yeah, I would say, I think it's interesting that people would choose to say STI versus STD for the purpose of it being less stigmatized or less scary because it seems like, well, I would say infection also sounds probably un as unpleasant as disease in terms of just like language, but also it it's more the social uh, construct of that stigma that's caused that word to be fearful versus this new word. So now that there's this new word, I feel like, won't over time this just become just as stigmatized if we don't start breaking that down now? Exactly. The stigma is not solely um, based upon the language and based upon the name. It's the stigma is based around how it's contracted and what our, um, what our social beliefs are around how these infections are contracted. And yes, and still nobody wants an infection or a disease of any kind, but that kind of comes back to that carnal theory of it is still part of our experience. And as humans, we are resilient, but not infallible. And so these are things that happen to us, despite them being not, um, not what we're hoping for, like we'd like to prevent them as much as possible, but they're just a natural part of being human and not being, not being uh, superheroes essentially and, <laughs> and invincible. And so when you say it's a part of like the normal part of a human experience or a part of the normal human experience, um, are you saying that because of its high likelihood or high frequency or, or because we're just incapable of being, you know, completely safe from them? Is there, what is that like human experience you're talking about there? Oh yes. I'm glad you, you wanted to tease that out some uh, further because first, first and foremost, it's definitely because of the numbers. The vast majority of all people will contract an STI at some point in their lives. The vast majority of all sexually active people. So if you are a sexually active individual, you are more likely to contract an STI than you are not. And so, um, Ultimately, that is just even though we can do lots of things to mitigate that risk, reduce it as much as possible, you're still likely to contract an infection at some point. And most won't know it. Some infections clear on their own. HPV is the example that I often give the human papillomavirus. There are low risk strains and high risk strains. 80% or more of all people contract HPV at some point in their lives. So that's one STI out of the 30 STIs, the 30 plus actually, there's probably a few more. 
According to the World Health Organization, there's over 30 STIs and HPV is just one of those 30. So if 80% of all people contract HPV at some point, and then you add all of these other common infections onto it, we know that the vast majority of all sexually active people contract an STI. So numbers wise, even though I don't always lead with statistics and, and statistics can feel um inhumane or they, um, or, or too, um, clinical and, and they feel removed and not part of our own experience and our lived experience and our reality that's still relevant in that point is like, it's very likely. And so understanding that and being aware of that, I think empowers people to make the decisions that are going to be right for them. So that's the first part of like, yes, that's why it's part of the human experience because we can still do more things to reduce the amount of infections that exist, um, but they're still not ever going to entirely go away, which speaks to your second point is there's no such thing as safe sex. Like we've updated that term as well from safe to safer sex because any kind of partnered sexual activities contain some level of risk, all oral, manual, um, and penetrative. It just depends on the body parts involved and um, all the different things that are all the activities that are happening, but all of them contain some level of risk, some less than others, of course, but there's risk involved. So understanding that, accepting that, um, and then knowing what to do with it, I think going forward helps people to make better decisions and, and decisions that feel better, not necessarily better morally or better from a social perspective, because it's no one's right to make that decision for anyone else, but it feels better for themselves. They feel more secure and more empowered about the decisions they're making and what will suit them best. And how can people go about making that decision in the moment? What are some tools that you give of, of getting people to feel comfortable in the moment? Ooh, that's a big question. So I think, first of all, communication is key. Um, and probably before communication, education, the most um, the most information that you can know about what your relative risk is and what the likelihood and how um, this experience is relatable and is it is part of an experience that all types of people um, encounter. Being understanding that and understanding ways to reduce risk and what might work best for you and your partner or partners. I think that's the first step, which of course our educational systems are a lar largely faulted and largely abstinence-based only and or shame, um, shame-filled, shame-centric. So unfortunately, we don't have great foundation for that, but we can become our own best advocate. So I think that's the first step is just feeling like we are as informed as possible and then communicating with our partners, communicating about our status, communicating about what our needs are, what our boundaries are, what we need to feel safe in whatever interaction we're engaging in, whatever intimacy and partnered activities we want to enjoy, um, and talking about enjoying those activities and pleasure and um, and I think that that's all part of that, like that's, that's all part of that comfortability. But that said, these conversations, we don't see a lot of examples in pop culture, media, and overall, and again, in educational systems, or um, we're really, we, we're not given a lot of really relevant or practical examples. And so we can feel super vulnerable when we start to have those discussions because it doesn't seem like it's happening regularly. And I think that's okay to be vulnerable and to admit and talk about that maybe this is uncomfortable or I really don't even know the right words for this. Like all of those things build intimacy and trust. And that in and of itself, I think helps 
people to feel better about the decisions they're making and to feel better about the safety around the decisions that they're making. That communication aspect seems like a big area of fear or, or, um, Reluctance. Fear of t- if you, yeah, someone who, let's say uh, you are someone who has tested positively for an STI and you need to go have a conversation with your partner about that, that I feel like is a very, very intimidating and frightening thing in our society um, because there's so much of this stigma and shame around it. And I think a lot of people have this thought that if you have an STI, you, that's like the end of your sex life. Cause no one's going to want to have sex with you anymore. And I mean, obviously that's not the truth. So how do you have a conversation with your partner or partners, or maybe it's not your partner at all. It's just someone that you want to like have a sexual experience with. How do you have an expl- uh, a conversation where you can, you know, be honest, but still be empowered to embrace your sexuality? Oh, you're absolutely right too. And that is like the number one biggest question I receive all the time. And first of all, I think it's important to share anecdotally stories that um, personally for me, I've never experienced rejection as a result of disclosing my STI. I have genital herpes and I've also previously had HPV and scabies. And so I've had multiple STIs, which is actually quite common, even though no one talks about even having one, let alone multiple. And um, none of my partners had cared. And once I started to realize that and had so many experiences that that mimicked that or that were identical in that way, I realized that there was a disconnect between what we believe socially and what the actual reality is of living with an STI. However, the fear around having that discussion, because we don't have very many practical examples of how to disclose, of how to talk about safer sex, of how to talk about what we need, want, our boundaries, our yeses, our nos, um, what our expectations are about whatever we're hoping that is going to happen in this potential activity that's about to ensue. Um, None of those, we we just aren't given a lot of ways in which to see that um, wow, practical examples. What's the other word I'm looking for? We're not, it's just not demonstrated really in any kind of way or any, in any sort of educational model. So that said, the fear is uh, a lot about the unknown and then fear of rejection as well, which that's going to be there regardless. But then we add another layer because the stigma leads us to believe that for sure somebody is going to immediately say no and nobody would ever want us and nobody would ever think we're desirable or sexy or nobody will ever want to have sex with us again. I mean, I believe that for sure for years and years. I really truly believe that about myself. And it was only after years of seeing the opposite come true that I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. So the fear is okay and fear helps us in some ways. But I think that we turn it into, we catastrophize it, and we think the worst case scenario is definitely no matter what going to happen. And the likelihood that the worst case scenario is the likelihood that somebody is going to have a massively adverse, horrible reaction is slim to none. Um, And most people are going to be somewhere else along that spectrum. They might be kind of neutral about it, or they're not going to care very much at all. So I think understanding that and reframing it in a way that's a little bit more realistic um, and acknowledging it and then practicing. Practice helps um, having those conversations in the mirror with ourselves, with a friend that you trust, 
that can help, um, but it's never going to entirely take it away. Like that discussion is awkward. And you can, again, you can acknowledge that it's awkward, that you feel vulnerable. Um, but I also think it's important to remember that this is a two-way reciprocal conversation. So if you're disclosing your STI status, you're disclosing your STI status because yes, of course, you want you have to let someone know about your STI before engaging in activities with them in order for informed consent to happen. But you also care about your body, your sexual health, your safety, your comfort, your pleasure. That's just as important as theirs. And you want to know what their status is. Have they been tested? What do they think about protection and ways to reduce risk, et cetera? So it's not just we're whoever has the STI, we're the monsters that everybody has to worry about and is scared of. It's that we actually care and it should be a back and forth dialogue as opposed to just, a, I need to tell you something really big and horrible because everyone has stuff that they feel like would be like a yellow or orange flag to someone, um, things that they have hold shame around, things that they don't feel particularly proud of about themselves. I mean, we all have that. And an STI might be just one of them, but that doesn't actually mean anything about you and who you are as an individual. And sharing that opens up a space for that conversation around your desire and pleasure and safety and all of the things that can really enrich your intimacy with a partner. So there's a lot to gain outside of just that potential fear and that rejection that may happen, which that does sometimes. It does. People do experience rejection when they disclose, but for all the rejections that people experience, they experience so many more also uh, cases of acceptance and understanding and opening up. And can you just go over quickly some of the ways that that uh, some of the preventative measures that we can take to minimize and make uh, safer sex? For sure. So there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of ways. So comprehensive safer sex is multiple steps, and everyone's going to choose to incorporate all or some. Um, it might be different with each partner, with each activity, et cetera. Uh, one of the ways is, is communication. Communication is key for comprehensive, safer sex. Barriers, things like dental dams, condoms, internal and external, um, those will reduce risk greatly, especially for all bacterial infections. There's three different kinds of STIs, parasitic, viral, and bacterial. And bacterial are typically the, the curable infections. And um, the bac bacterial infections are prevented and, and very well prevented by barriers. Then there are parasitic infections and viral infections that are also reduced significantly, uh, the risk is, by barriers. And then lube. Lube is my favorite prevention method that most people don't talk about or don't realize is a form of prevention. Lube it should be everyone's best friend. First of all, it feels good, so why not? Um, but I think we should normalize the conversation around lube and encourage more people to use it. And um, lube can be your WAP and it can be your wet ass pussy. And it can be totally as a result of lube. And it does not have to be naturally occurring because that just doesn't work for all people. And there's a myriad of different reasons why that doesn't necessarily always happen in that kind of way, just naturally occurring with your body. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong or broken with you. So lube is great to reduce friction. It feels good. And it feels good because it reduces the amount of friction and the amount of small, tiny cuts and tears that can happen as a result of just every or a regular, regular of, of all kinds of sexual activities. And, and, and this doesn't necessarily mean when you think of like small, tiny cuts and tears, you might be thinking to yourself like, well, it doesn't hurt. Like I'm not 
having aggressive sex, which there's nothing wrong with aggressive sex either. So if you're having long-term marathon aggressive sex, then that's awesome too. But if you're not, and you're not necessarily experiencing any pain, that doesn't mean you're not experiencing small, tiny cuts and tears. The genital tissues are very sensitive and all places where there are mucous membranes, where sexual activity might occur are very sensitive and easily disturbed or easily ruptured um, via just some light friction. So the lube reduces that and those small, tiny cuts and tears that uh, that provides points of entry for infection. So if the lube reduces the small, tiny cuts and tears that happen, that also reduces the likelihood that there's an entry point for infection. So it feels good and it reduces risk. Um, so yeah, so barriers, lube, communication, and testing, getting regularly tested, whatever regular is for you, that's going to be different based on your sexual activity behavior, partners, et cetera, um, talking about testing. I think that's it, the four. Um, oh, but a note about the testing though, and communication, the, a note about testing, I think that's important is understanding, not just getting tested, but understanding which tests are being performed because um, not all STI tests and not all STI panels are the same. And you may not actually even be getting tested. For instance, if you're getting a pap smear done, an annual physical and you're a person with a vagina, um, then you may not actually be getting STI tests done at all. Pap smears typically don't include STI tests unless that's part of their regular annual testing procedure and that's included in your annual test or your triannual or you know however often you're getting them done right now based on the recommendations. But um, it's important to know which tests you're getting tested for so that you can communicate that too, because you may go to one clinic and they'll test you for three things. And you may go to another and they'll test you for four. So understanding what tests are being performed, which ones and what actual tests are being performed is important too. And I have a question about that. Uh, so when it, so testing, um, home testing kits are getting more and more popular and, um, I notice in them, there's often like different packages or levels that you can buy it'll be like get these three tests together or get these five tests together and it's obviously it can be a pretty significant price difference are there like certain groups of tests and and I mean and I and I assume my assumption there is that like the 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 cheaper three let's call it are going to include like the major ones um, and then like the larger one, like that's, if you're feeling you might be more at risk, do you feel that that's generally true slash, like, I know that you don't know, like all the testing kits out there. That's not the question. Um, but like, do, are, are there, are there, which STIs do you feel are like the most important to get? If you're doing these regular tests, here's what you need to be getting regularly tested on. Yeah. So that's a really great question because the recommendations are different for every gender. And really that just means genital configuration as well as every age, as well as every um, behavioral pattern, depending on what types of sex you're engaging with, engaging in, um, whether you are a sex worker, whether you are um, often enjoying casual sex and, and maybe just oral sex. And so it's tough because there's not one blanket, like here are the five tasks that everyone should get. Um, I think the online test, the one that you're, the ones you're talking about, there are quite a few private companies 
And, and they offer some great tests. I will give the caveat that I actually found one recently that I was working with. And then I stopped working with them because they were offering a urine test for herpes, which is not accurate at all and gives you no information and is, is a horribly wildly um, problematic way in which to test for herpes and should not ever be used. It should be a blood test. So it's, it's important to do a little bit of your due diligence if you are going to seek an online private testing. Like you said too, they're expensive. They can be. They're not nearly as accessible financially. Um, so the difference, the diff- there, there's three different like layers of STI testing. You can get free testing done, which is typically done at a, uh, like a health department or a public health clinic. And those usually offer the fewest number of tests. And that's typically three to four tests. There's some of the most common STIs. So it's, it's definitely good to get tested for those infections, but that's not encompassing all infections, of course. And the tests that you can get done for free at like a public health department or a clinic are going to be for chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and HIV. Those are the four you see most often. Then you could potentially go to your healthcare provider and get tested that may or may not be covered by insurance and, or it could be on a sliding scale. Planned Parenthood, I would also categorize into the healthcare provider category, even though they're a clinic because they don't offer all testing for free. And sometimes it's sliding scale income-based and they offer a little larger, wider array of tests. And they're going to usually ask a little bit more, even even the free clinics ask screening questions about your behavior. And sometimes that can feel off-putting and very invasive because they're asking you like, are you engaging in oral sex? Have you ever been paid for sex? Have you ever used drugs while you're, you know, and it seems like I don't want you to know all that business and maybe I don't want to share that or I'm not proud of it or whatever it is, however you feel around those things and questions in that conversation. The reason they're asking them is particular because they will give you potentially different tests based on your activity. So if you are having partners who you're just engaging in oral sex with, then they'll often offer you a throat swab because you can have an infection in your mouth or throat and not have it genitally. And then it wouldn't be detected on like a urine or a blood test. So then there's the four paid private companies. There's ones that will deliver tests right to your home. And then there's also ones where you can like go to just a regular, any kind of clinic where they do like blood draws and urine samples for drug testing for workers and all um, any manner of reason. So you'd walk into this clinic and you'd get your blood and urine drawn. um, And nobody would know necessarily why you're there because people are there for a variety of reasons. Those are the paid ones. The nice thing about those is you can get a ton more infections tested. They offer things like hepatitis A, B, and C, trick, which is sometimes offered by some of these other providers. Um, I'm trying to think of some. Oh, herpes. You can get herpes tests. You can also request a herpes test from not from a private or not from a public clinic for free, um, but from like one of the sliding scales of Planned Parenthood or your private healthcare provider, but they may or may not allow you to get tested for it. So usually herpes test, blanket testing or routine testing isn't recommended for herpes um, currently. And you either have to have a partner who you know has it and, or you have to have signs or symptoms that are present. But sometimes at Planned Parenthood, you can just ask for it and pay for it separately. So there's these three categories, like the free 
where you get like three to four tests. Then there's the middle, the private healthcare providers and or like a Planned Parenthood clinic, which is oftentimes sliding scale, maybe covered by insurance. And then there's your private providers, which offer you a vast, a larger array of types of tests. And they also do some screening questions, which can help direct you to which tests might be suitable for you based on behavior and age, et cetera, genital configuration. But those are going to be a whole lot more expensive, of course, like you mentioned, and they can, they can be upwards for like an entire package, 10 to 14 tests can be two to $300. Interesting. Interesting. What do you think prevents things from just being easier and cheaper? Like, it seems like that's just such an obvious public health basic thing to provide. (laughs) It does, right? It seems like a no brainer. Like this should just be practical. Everyone would want to know this. I mean, everyone's always shocked when they find out that they haven't been tested for herpes. The vast majority of people, even if you've had STI testing done, you haven't been tested for herpes. I can almost guarantee it. I even had an argument the other day with a gal online. It was a friendly argument, someone I knew from school who follows my work and supports what I'm doing. And she's like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure I got tested I got tested for a bunch of stuff when I was pregnant. And I was like, well, you didn't get tested for herpes. And she was like, yeah. And I, and I looked it up. She's in a different country right now. And I looked up what the country recommendations were and what the routine screening was for pregnant women. And it wasn't herpes. And so I sent it to her and I said, that's a common misconception. And, um, and she's like, oh, I thought it was like, because it's such a huge risk for pregnancy. I'm like, well, that's also a common misconception. It's a risk, but it's not, it's not as huge as you might assume. And it's only for certain circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. And, So people really even push back when you tell them the facts and the information, like, no, I know I don't have herpes and I've been tested. And it's like, no, you actually probably haven't because they're not doing that. And they, and so to answer your question with this really long story, it's part of it is the efficacy of the tests and um, herpes tests in particular, depending on the timing of tests, you can get a lot of false negatives. You can also, depending on the type of test that's being administered, you can get a false positive. Um, there are some gold standard tests out there, but they're also not cheap. So the procedural process, the testing, um, modality is not accessible in terms of healthcare there right now. They don't feel like it's a giant need because basically the vast majority of people have some form of herpes type one or type two. Um, so there's a few reasons around herpes, but that is similar to some of these other tests, either the test the tests themselves are not very, the efficacy of the test is in question. The test pricing and accessibility um, is rare and not, um, not advantageous from a healthcare business perspective. Um, and then also there just aren't tests for certain things. So if you are a person with a penis, you can't be tested for HPV. And, and that's both low risk and high risk strains. And like I said, at the very beginning of our conversation, over 80% of all people contract HPV at some point in their lives. And that includes people with penises and they can't actually be tested for tested for HPV at all. And this is no exaggeration. You can Google this, <laughs> Google it and look it up. But the only way in which to find out if you say you are a person with a penis, the only way in which to find out if you have HPV is if you have physical visual signs 
of HPV and the only kind of HPV that even that even um, presents with physical signs are the low risk strains that cause genital warts. So if you have visual warts, that's the only way in which to diagnose a person with a penis with HPV. If they are carrying a high risk strain of HPV, there's no way to determine that. If they're carrying a low risk strain of HPV, but they just don't have symptoms themselves, there's no way to determine that. So it's kind of blows your mind. Like, wait a minute, how are we, how is there not a test for all of this stuff? And I mean, our medical medicine is wonderful and has progressed in so many amazing ways, but we still have a ways to go too. It's still a practice. There's a reason why it's called a medical practice because it's not perfect. It's science. That is, uh, I did not know that. That is absolutely mind blowing. -blowing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Well, we have a few more minutes left and I want to get in a question from one of our Patreon supporters who sent some questions in for this month. Um, and there was two that were really interesting for us. And I don't know, Abba, if you have a preference about the, um, the question about AIDS or, or like the, both our question, let's see. The first one that they have is, um, they want to know if there are certain ethnicities, races or genders or et cetera, that are more affected by STDs and STIs. Yes, definitely. Great question. And it's not for the reasons that one might assume. I love this question because oftentimes in education and public service announcements, we do folks a disservice by not actually providing enough information around this because we leave it at just um, African-Americans or Black people are more likely and have a higher risk of infection. And um, uh, minorities in general all have a higher risk of infection. So if you are a minority, you're more likely to contract an STI. If you are a minority with a vagina, you're even more likely to contract an STI. But it's not because... so a lot of these people will be immediately placed into higher risk categories. You're you're deemed a high risk or you're a higher risk. And that language is harmful because it doesn't mean that your behavior or who you are, your activity, your, your personhood is a high risk. It's because of the health inequities, the barriers to entry and the social injustices that are around healthcare and around STI testing around um, ability to access, seek, and get inclusive, equitable, and empathetic medical care. So it has nothing to do with who you are. It's because of our crap systems that are in place. So yes, unfortunately, because of that, because of racism, because of these social injustices, these health inequities and disparities, these minority groups are more likely to have an infection. And that there's so much to unpack in that. And I think we've, we've looked a lot at the, the ways in which just the healthcare system in general has historically abused and refused and caused distrust. And it is, it is really, really upsetting and is incredibly systematic. Abba, do you want to ask that one last question we have about from our Patreon? Go ahead. I will say before, um, the one aspect that is both uh, related to 
disparities and inequities, but also is biological, is anyone who has a vulva vagina. So if you have a vulva vagina, you're more susceptible and more likely to contract an infection. And that's just because of your biology, because the vulva vagina is all mucous membranes. Mucous membranes are permeable tissue that allow entry point for an infection. The permeable tissue is meant to trap unwanted pathogens and to then allow our immune system to tackle them and to rid them from our bodies. But because our bodies can't fight certain uh, STIs in general on their own, then that allows an entry point. So again, women get the short end or or not women, people with uh, vulvas and vaginas get the short end of the stick here just because of biology. But again, it's not because of behavior. It's not because people are sluts and promiscuous and trashy and whores and, you know, all of these misconceptions and et cetera, similar to some of these other misconceptions around um, racial minorities and um, uh, orientation, sexual orientation, sexual minorities, et cetera. It's not because of our behavior or who we are as individuals. It's because of either biology um, and or it's because of disparities. And so for this last question, which we'll try and wrap up pretty quickly, we had noticed a lot of our um, audience and our Patreon supporters had kind of equated STI, STD with HIV AIDS. And as you mentioned, there's like 30 plus STIs that exist that you can contract. Um, Have you noticed this, uh, that it's common for a lot of people to just immediately jump to HIV and AIDS when they hear STD? Yeah, I see that on TikTok. I'm on TikTok a lot. And then and then the some of the hate comments you get from like these young adults, teenagers are like, oh, I'm I'm gonna stay away from you and your AIDS. And 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 you know that this is coming from a place of a lack of education and information and just a pure ignorance. And ignorance is fixable. Ignorance is not stupidity. Stupidity means you can't actually gain this knowledge and improve upon and grow and unlearn. But ignorance means you actually, there's there's hope there. So I have hope for all of these folks. But yeah, actually, I, interestingly enough, in the public health sector, I see them separated all the time, which I think leads to this kind of um, social way in which we talk about STIs. I see it set, I see it categorized as STIs and HIV or HIV and other STIs. And that in and of itself leads to and, and instills a hierarchy, like HIV is the big one, the bad one, and then there's these other STIs. And that's not the case at all, especially again, because of modern medicine, depending on what your accessibility is, whether or not you're able to access the treatments. But there are many STIs that can be really harmful that can cause long-term irreparable damage if undetected and untreated, not only just HIV. And so separating them like that, I think is actually leads to this viewpoint that HIV is the worst, the highest, the, the absolute baddest thing that could happen to you in in terms of STIs and STDs. And of course, HIV is the infection. And and if you have access to current care, then you can have your infection, HIV, and be entirely undetectable um, with treatment. And you cannot transmit undetectable goes untransmittable to potential partners. So, uh, or to partners. So now the 
we need to stop separating it basically is what I'm trying to say. The whole, the hierarchy is problematic. I think it causes a stratification and this othering even within the sphere of, of folks who have an STI and within the sexual health space. And, um, and it causes more problems than it helps. And it, I feel like it's such a great example also of like, when we do put our efforts to solving an issue to, to solving, you know, we have created a solution to HIV, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's a fix for that basically. Um, so it, I feel like it gives a lot of hope, both that if we just put our resources to these other STIs that we could possibly have solutions there as well, that, that wouldn't be damaging. Um, and so it, it, I think it underlines the importance of, of the education of getting the word out because HIV had all that marketing, basically. It had a huge marketing in New York City um, and especially, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the Western side of things and that blew up, you know, the resources that came with it uh, of being able to find a solution. So if we had, you know, not that we need marketing for other STIs, but in a way that's a little bit of what this whole discussion is, is it's giving some marketing for all these other um, STIs that exist and saying, Hey, you know, equal, equal focus needs to be placed on them because they're also, they're also out there. They're also an issue. They're actually more prevalent. Um, let's, let's put our resources across the board instead of just <laughs> who gets the limelight for a minute. Um, but Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. We want to loop back as we close up. Uh, can you repeat to us again, the carnal theory? Yes, STIs are a normal part of the human experience. I would agree with that. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Carnal Theory. Please, please check out Janelle's work. Um, you can follow her on Instagram at the SDI Project or go to her website, thesdiproject.com. Janelle, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Carnal Theory is produced by My Sex Bio. Our sound design is by Audrey Cohane, and our theme music by Men the Universe. My Sex Bio is an educational platform built to empower people like you to take command of your sexual biography. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and Spotify at My Sex Bio. Visit our website and join our e-letter at MySexBio.org and support our work by joining our Patreon. Thank you. Thank you.